Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week to discuss the first chunk of chapters from Percy Jackson and The Last Olympian by Rick Riordan. We're discussing chapters 1 through 12, which means we're almost done with the series. Just this episode and next week and we'll be done. Yep, that's so exciting. We'll have finished our first full series. And just for anyone who's new to the show, we're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network. We take a book club approach to reading and rereading young adult literature. We're best friends, and we've wanted to share books with each other, so we turned the discussions into a podcast for everyone else, too. We decided to start this show with the series Percy Jackson because I read it when I was growing up, and I wanted to share it with Charles, who's never read it before. And because he's new to the books, he gets to summarize the reading in case anyone in our audience didn't read along with us this week. So, Charles, can you get into the summary for us? Sure thing. Percy Jackson, The Last Olympian, chapters 1 through 12. Okay, so we start with Percy and Charles Beckendorf on a mission to destroy the Princess Andromeda, Kronos's cruise ship. But it goes really badly because Kronos has spies on board. Beckendorf sacrifices himself, but Percy gets blasted off the ship. He ends up being nursed back to health in Poseidon's palace, where he can see that the war underwater between his dad and Oceanus, the water titan, is going really badly. Percy gets back to camp, at which point we finally hear the full great prophecy, and we have a big war council. Nico shows up, and he and Percy go to chat with Luke's mom and Percy's mom, and then they go visit Luke's Nico's dad, Hades, who locks them up, but they escape. Big moment. Percy bathes in the river Styx, and he goes to meet up with the other campers at Olympus, and they see that the invasion of Manhattan is about to start, so they prep for the battle. And basically, we stop between waves of the battle. So, as always, I'll give my quick first impression, and then we'll get into a full discussion. The book definitely, this one feels different than the other ones. They've all sort of followed a particular structure. Basically, we get to camp, the oracle gives a prophecy and a quest, the crew leaves to fulfill the quest. Granted, we do have a a prophecy in this case, we have the great prophecy, but it doesn't quite feel the same way because we've basically been in battle action the whole time. Like, we start with a wartime mission, and then we move into status on the war, and then we're literally prepping for war in Manhattan. So it's it's a different vibe. Even though we're still following that prophecy model, it definitely has a little more of a kinetic feeling than the others. Yeah, definitely. With the beginning of the war, there's definitely going to be a lot of death, so this book is going to be depressing. But at the same time, it's going to be fulfilling because we're going to get a lot of our questions finally answered that we've had throughout the series. So I'm very much looking forward to that, and I know I enjoyed that during the reading. But it does kind of suck that not so much we haven't had any main characters die yet, but just characters that have finally been named, given a little bit of a backstory, we're going to kind of lose them right away. So that's definitely sad. But the book starts right off with Percy and Rachel, which I wrote down immediately that, wow, Percy's been spending a lot of quality time with Rachel. And that first chapter even ends that Rachel kisses Percy 
on the lips right as right before he leaves to go on his first mission. Yeah, even she she even says like if a boy likes a girl, shouldn't the boy kiss her? And she just kisses him. I mean, all for her like female empowerment, go you what? But also like that's something that I mean, I think they should have discussed, but whatever. Percy's like a little flabbergasted by it. And then we find out that the plan is just to go blow up Kronos' ship. Like, really? That makes no sense. I was like, he's a titan. Percy couldn't defeat him with a very fancy sword last time. I don't think that blowing up the ship is going to stop immortal Luke Titan Kronos. And I wrote down the plan's going to go badly. And then it did go badly. And we basically, Charles and Percy get caught on the Princess Andromeda and Percy can tell that Charles is going to sacrifice himself, and I could tell, too. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. And they do manage to destroy the ship, which is great. It does help delay the war, but, like, I, I thought it was a bad plan to begin with. Yeah, well, I think the plan was not to hurt Kronos, but to hurt the army, because if they blew up the ship, they could have blew up a lot of the monsters and some of their troops, obviously, but it does suck. I was very sad right from the beginning. You know, we finally get more of a background on Charles and how he's dating Selena from the Aphrodite cabin. Like, so it was just sad that it's like, okay, we're finally kind of getting to know this character and then we lose him right at the beginning. Yeah. But really important, we get revealed from Kronos' lips to us that there is a spy at camp. And I just want to say, like, I've been flagging this every freaking book, but also... Like, Luke told Percy that, and none of the characters, because they mention a bunch in this reading, and I'm like, I'm sure it's going to be a bigger deal. But I want to say that, like, Luke already told Percy that, and no one has taken it really that seriously until now. And I'm like, maybe you should have taken it seriously earlier. Well, I think the thing with the spies, because they talk about a little bit further on into the book in some of the chapters once they're in the war, about there's this spy among them. Like, it is kind of like, it's unless that spy makes a mistake or something and accidentally reveals themselves, it's kind of hard to wean them out without interrogating everyone, which I know later on in the book, they're like, we just have to stick together. Like, there's really nothing we can do, which I guess they could interrogate everybody, but it just causes a lot of distrust along their group, which there's so few of them, they really need to try and just stick together during this time. But I am hoping and I'm assuming we're going to finally find out who the spy or spies are by the end of the book. But speaking of spying, we get a Percy dream where he is spying with Nico on the Titans. Nico sends him this dream, basically. But we see this Titan who seems to be maybe second in command, but we don't know who it is. And they talk about the gods have a challenge coming up. Like we get a couple of new, inf- we get some more new information, but it's not really clear what it is. So it's, it still leaves more questions. Yeah. Percy's like wondering whether the distraction or the gods accepting the challenge is the distraction of Typhon, but he's not even sure. And we just know Kronos could really throw anything at us. So it's going to be, I'm sure there are going to be some more twists and turns before just the getting all the gods out of Olympus. And we do find out that Percy has rejected and ignored Nico's plan for a year. So if you remember at the end of last book, Nico shows up and he says, I have a plan to defeat Luke. And apparently he's been like talking to Percy about it, like 
every few weeks, but Percy just ignored it. So it's got to be a pretty intense plan. Yes. And Percy, after blowing up the ship, he finally gets to visit the underwater palace of Poseidon, but only for a brief time, and it's just basically while he's recovering from his injuries. But while he's down there, the war underwater is going very, very badly, and he goes to see his father, Poseidon, and he tells him that he really wants to help, he wants to help fight down here, but Poseidon basically emphasizes that your fight is above ground and that it's time for him to finally hear the full great prophecy, which means Percy goes back to camp and we get that prophecy from the Oracle. Yep. We get back to camp and just the way Percy describes Annabeth, I didn't write this one down, but I wrote down another one. Like it's just very clear that he like Annabeth is his special person. You know, we get it. He likes Rachel. He's recognizes that she's pretty, but like even after the weirdness between them, between Percy and Annabeth, like, it's clear that he likes her. And I think I have a quote later on of the way he describes Annabeth that, like, it's clear that she's special. But let's go ahead and get into the great prophecy. I've got it out here so we can discuss it. But I'll just to recap it. It's a half-blood of the eldest gods shall reach 16 against all odds and see the world in endless sleep. The hero's soul, cursed blade, shall reap a single choice shall end his days, Olympus to preserve or raise. And just breaking down really quickly, and then Asia, I want to hear your thoughts after that, but very clearly, Half-Blood of the Eldest Gods is big three, Half-Blood. Okay, great. Turn 16, great. See the world in endless sleep. We kind of get an answer on that a little later on when it turns out that Morpheus puts all of Manhattan to sleep. The hero's soul, Cursed Blade, shall reap. We'll see what that means. A single choice shall end his days. God talk about that. And Olympus to preserve a raise is pretty clear. But Asia, what are your thoughts? Uh, I just wrote down in my notes, basically, because I think Percy, when he first reads the cursed blade part, he immediately thinks of Riptide, which I thought was interesting because it seems like everyone else in the room and myself as well, Mm -hmm. I thought of Kronos' scythe, his blade, Mm -hmm. as being the... Cursed Blade, especially talk about how it can rip your soul from your body. So to me, that sounds like the Cursed Blade. But we do know that Percy's Blade has been cursed. So I thought that was interesting. So we'll kind of get to find out whose blade it actually means. And then obviously, the biggest revelation of this at Percy is that he's going to die. And he's obviously very upset by this. And he even like says something to Chiron of like, or he thinks at least that he's like, this is why Chiron didn't tell me that, you know, no matter what I do, I'm going to die no matter what. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of sad. But I'm just putting this out there that I don't think Percy's going to die. I'm almost, I'm pretty much 100% sure he's not going to die, especially because there are more books in the, in Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson world. There are more books in this series. It's like continuations and Percy Jackson is in those books. So he's not going to die. But I am curious to see who will. Yeah. I I was wondering whether, like, parts of the prophecy could refer to someone else. Nico is obviously a big three. Luke is, you know, he's special now. Like, oldest gods, Titans were gods. Like, now he's kind of a half-blood taff Titan. Like, I think that's probably going a little too far. I think the Perse prophecy is just about Percy. But, like, this is all just to say that prophecies are basically never just as we first read them. So the idea that like 
his soul will be reaped. It could be something like because of what he does with Achilles's challenge that like now his soul needs to be like resaved from his body. And that's actually a good thing because he has to get mm-hmm. freed out of his Achilles body. Like, you know, I like I think that Percy jumping to the fact that, oh, I must die or like my his days shall end like. Whatever that is, I don't think it's going to be exactly Percy dying because that just doesn't seem fitting. It's too obvious. Also, I'm just thinking about this, reading it. How it's worded, like you would think that it's just talking about this half-blood is also the hero, but what if it's not? What if the half-blood, the first half is just about Percy, let's say. They're saying that basically by the time this half-blood turns 16, this is when this is all going to happen. But then the second half, when it starts talking about the hero's soul what if that has nothing to do with that particular half-blood because to me the hero's soul what if it's luke turns out to be a hero and his the cursed blade whether it's percy whoever he's able to be freed from chronos like separate the soul from the body or something like that and that single choice maybe to finally be redeemed ends luke's life but it ends up saving olympus Yep, that's my prediction. Well, that's basically <laughs> my prediction, too. So I think that... We're glad we're on the same page. Yeah, I just think that it's definitely not... Like, the first conclusion of a prophecy is almost never right. So the idea that, like, well, Percy must die because it says end days is not... Like, that's not a good enough explanation. There's going to be more complexity to it. Yeah. And then kind of relating to the prophecy, we have... Rachel dreaming about the past and the future. Percy has a dream where he sees Rachel and she's painted these images of things that are to come, basically, which I thought was interesting because obviously how Percy gets all these dreams and he can see the future and he sees the past like with Daedalus. But maybe Rachel, even though she's immortal, she also has that power that things come to her. So I thought that was really interesting. And then we also get more cute Percy moments with Annabeth during their inspection of the cabins. Yeah. I wrote down this description because it was sweet because he's talking about her and he says that she was always cute, but now she's seriously beautiful. Like, he's so smitten. They've had, like, awkwardness, but, like, they get chores and they're like, oh, let's do our chores together so we don't have to be alone when we do them. Like, come on. They're they're so cute. (laughs) Yeah, especially, too, because everyone else in the camp, like, knows it, too. Oh my goodness, when they were like, um, we're in a war, you two, like, don't yeah, get Yeah, exactly. Like, but anyway, during that scene, Annabeth, you know, kind of ruins the romance once again because she's just constantly Ugh. jealous of Percy's relationship with Rachel and she ends up calling him a coward, which is just not true. He's obviously not a coward. He's put, He's had to do all these things, all these responsibilities have been put on his shoulders as the son of Poseidon. So he's definitely not a coward. She's not saying a coward in, like, that sense. She's saying he's a coward in love. Like, he can't realize that, like, he doesn't realize he's he's not realizing what Rachel's relationship does to his relationship with Annabeth. And he won't say to Annabeth how he feels about her. Well, then doesn't that make Annabeth a coward, too? Because I'm sorry, like, she could say something, too. And she Absolutely. said... She said nothing, so it's But she on both kissed of him them. twice. She kissed his cheek, and then she kissed him on the mouth. Yeah, but, like, she did that, and then she was super mean to him afterwards so it's kind of like a lot of mixed signals i definitely think you know i think both of them could grow up exactly but i mean they are only 15 almost 16 all the hormones i guess (laughs) yeah a lot of hormones 
Well, you know who definitely is not a coward is Nico because we get his age confirmed because we've been like we're trying to remember what it was. He's oh, fully he, twelve years old. Well, in each book they get older by one year, so it makes sense that he's twelve in this book. They said he was eleven in the last book because a year passes. They confirm it. In I every can't book. remember exactly what how old they said he was last book, but either way, he's he twelve 11. and he's talking to the dead constantly. Like he can travel through shadows, which is pretty cool. And his plan um, is, and I predicted this when he started discussing the plan. I was like, oh, his plan is basically going to involve Percy having to make a similar sacrifice to Luke. That's going to give him strength like Luke's. Or it's going to give him, like, the power to be, like, possessed by a titan or possessed by a god. Something that, like, makes his body ready to be equal to Luke. Like, I could tell from the way he was talking about it. I was like, it's got to be something dark that will Mm -hmm. allow Percy to be on the same playing field. And Percy, as just, like, a regular human or regular demigod, I should say, can't reach Luke's strength. But did you guess that too, Asia? Well, I actually just need to guess that part because I remembered this. I remembered that, and I knew that Percy was going to have to swim in the River Styx to pretty to pretty much become invincible, so that he could fight Kronos. Like, obviously, from what we've seen, he clearly doesn't stand a chance, just as a normal demigod. So, but I I specifically remembered that, so I didn't have to guess. Gotcha. Well, we know that that is now the plan. Nico's plan is for Percy to do the same thing as Luke, bathe in the river Styx, and therefore get the power of Achilles. And I should pro- should I review the myth of Achilles, Asia? Yes, please. I was just about <laughs> to ask you to do that. Sure. Okay. Well, I did have to double check it, um, but it's the the myth of Achilles is the story of the Iliad by Homer. And basically, Achilles was a baby, and his mom dropped him in the river Styx. Stupid. But that gave him immense power and strength. And he was fighting against the Trojans. I think he defeats a Trojan prince during the Trojan War. But she holds on to him. His mom holds on to baby Achilles by his heel. But like, like she doesn't completely drop him. She just like holds on to him. She's his lifeline. And that one spot, like the bottom of his heel, is becomes his area of weakness. So when he is eventually wounded, he gets shot in with the bow and arrow just in that one spot of his Achilles heel, and that causes his death. And that's why we call the ankle tendon in the back the Achilles tendon, and someone's Achilles heel is sort of like their fatal flaw or their weakness, basically whatever aspect of their mind or body is vulnerable, especially someone who is really strong or competent otherwise. There's like one spot or one characteristic that they lack, and that's considered their Achilles heel. So we basically find out that Kronos made Luke bathe in the river Styx to get this Achilles power, and Percy is going to do it as well to match him. Yes, and before they do this, Percy and Nico go to visit Luke's mother, which she turns out to be a little crazy, not all the way there in the head. And she's, it basically seems like she's just been waiting for Luke to return from when he ran away all those years ago. And we also learned that she can also see through the mist. And it sounds like she might have been used for something for the gods that gave her PTSD. Or I was thinking maybe she had some kind of spirit that possessed her, kind of like the Oracle. Because while they're talking to her, there's a moment where her eyes glow green and her voice changes for a second and she says something really scary. But we don't get any confirmation on what that means, but... It's terrifying, nonetheless. But Percy and Nico do discover that Luke's mom 
that Luke had come to visit his mom before he decided to become one with Kronos to ask for her blessing before he bathed in the river Styx. So. Yeah, so we find out that's something that Percy's going to have to do as well. Like, it's like a requirement. Yeah. The mother has to be involved. And I was wondering if the eyes glowing green was maybe Hermes possessing her or something like that. But either way, this poor woman has been completely destroyed because of her involvement with the gods. And I do hope we get some answers or even some rehabilitation for her. Because it does sound like everything she was doing was just for Luke. Like, and he left her without any warning. And that actually ended up making her condition even worse because now she was alone and, like, physically damaged by her relationship with the gods. You think Hermes possessed her? Do you remember what she said when... It's, I don't remember. Let me see if I can pull it up. But it does look, it did look to me like it sounded the way, it sounded like it was Percy's, Percy, uh, Hermes speaking to Percy or Hermes speaking to Luke rather than the mother. But let me see. I can, I've got the book in front of me. Okay, because. Just give me a second. I just, I don't remember what she said. And I think that would also help because I don't think I wrote it down. Okay. I've got it right here. So. Miss Castellan gasped. She doubled over and her cookie tray clattered to the floor. Nico and I jumped to our feet. Miss Castellan, I said. Ah, she straightened. I scrambled away and almost fell over the kitchen table because her eyes, her eyes were glowing green. My child, she rasped in a much deeper voice, must protect him. Hermes, help. Not my child. Not his fate. No. She grabbed Nico by the shoulder and began to shake him as if to make him understand. Not his fate. And then there's a little more, and then suddenly she collapses, and then she looks normal again. So, okay, so it couldn't have been Hermes, because she's talking to Hermes. I, that's why I was saying, I think, if anything, I think she might have, I think later, Hestia or somebody said that they're like, she saw too much, basically, because they talked to Hermes briefly. Yeah. He doesn't give her any real answers, but I think that has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. But she's obviously, something's happened to her, and hopefully by the end of the book, we'll learn exactly what happened. Yeah, I hope so, too. Oh, this is our first time reading a full passage from the book. You get to next time. (laughs) Yes. So then we end up meeting the goddess Hestia, which she is the goddess of the hearth. And she tells Percy that she is the last Olympian, which is the name of the book. So she has to be important. And she talks about she's the last Olympian because, you know, all the other gods are out fighting Typhon right now. And she's the only person at Olympus, and she just tends the hearth, basically. She represents home, and, you know, they're all able to come home to her. So I thought that was very interesting. And she tells Percy that he must remember her when he makes his final decision, whatever that final decision is. And she warns him, I think, about, like, bathing in the River Styx and how it's, like, a bad idea. But Percy decides to go through with his plan And his mom, Sally, does give Percy her blessing. But I'm just, I'm really excited to, like, see Hestia's role in this story because she must have a large role. Yeah. And she, we see her again in a second and she's, yeah, she's got to be important. I know when she was like, I'm the last Olympian, I was like, ah, we got the title of the book, must be important. And before we get to the underworld or the sticks, I should say, I want to give a little flag to Percy and Sally when they're talking about like setting up a warning, which now as I'm rereading this in my notes for the podcast, it's kind of sad because Sally is almost definitely asleep because of Morpheus, but they agree to have a blue flare warning. 
And the blue flare, the blue food and the whole blue obsession is like something that we talked about in our very first episode of this show, because it's something that Percy's mom did when she was married to Gabe. And it's something that she and Percy always do where they try to eat blue food at all times. And that was one of the things that clued me into Poseidon being Percy's father, like the connection to the sea and the color blue. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a really cute callback that we got that in this book, like, Oh, just a reminder that Blue is something special for Percy and his mom. Mm-hmm. So then, moving on, we they head into the underworld. And before they do, Percy is able to finally find Grover, who's been missing in action this whole first part of the book. And he finds them through their empathy link. And Grover is sleeping, and he's able to wake him up. And then Grover comes and finds them. They're in Central Park. And Grover explains that basically... He thinks it's still June, I think, when it's actually August. So he's been asleep in Central Park for two months. And that's because all he can remember is right before he was put to sleep, he saw Morpheus, who is the god of dreams. And he said it looked like Morpheus was checking out the battlefield. He was kind of like writing things down, looking at the buildings. And we find out he works for Kronos. And basically, he puts Grover to sleep for two months, which... In actuality, he's like, it's not that long, luckily, because he makes a comment, which I thought was funny, how the the tree spirits. The dryads, how, the triads. Yeah, the dryads, how they, because first he's like, why didn't they wake you up? And he's like, two months is nothing for a tree. So they probably didn't <laughs> even think anything was wrong. I just thought that was funny because I'm like, well, obviously for a tree, but like Grover's not a tree. So when they've been like, wow, he's been asleep for a while. But I guess they just don't understand the passing of time. It's different for them since they're alive for so much longer. But anyway, I thought that was funny. But like you briefly mentioned before, the see the world in endless sleep from the prophecy probably has something to do with Morpheus and maybe it's part of Cronus' plan to put mortals asleep, which we eventually learned that once the battle starts, they've put all of Manhattan asleep. Yeah, and that does get confirmed in a couple chapters. And then... So once they've got Grover, there's just conveniently another entrance to Central... There's another entrance to the Underworld in Central Park that they just need Grover to play music in order to open. Yeah, that was way too convenient for me. In fact, the yeah, it just didn't make very... Like, in the first book, we had to go all the way to L.A. just to get into the Underworld. And now it just turns out, ah, there's actually a shortcut, like, a stone's throw away from Percy's apartment. Like, I get it. Plot-wise, it would have been, like, really difficult to get them to California. But honestly, I would have preferred if there had been something where, like, Nico can just, like, bring himself down to the underworld because he's Hades' son rather than, oh, there's another entrance that theoretically anyone could use. I didn't like that. Well, yeah, especially because they say it's from the myth of Orpheus and how mm-hmm. he tried to save his wife or something, mm-hmm. and but he played music. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, if all you had to do was play music to open this entrance like Grover was with them on the first quest like they could have done that but maybe they just didn't know but I did I felt that it would have been one thing if they would have said there's another entrance but it's like you have to do all this stuff to get it open it's really challenging they could have never done it on their first quest but it just it doesn't seem that challenging but anyway they do that (laughs) anyway once they get down into the underworld Percy finds out that Nico had actually tricked Percy 
and Takami to talk to Hades first because Hades promised Nico that if he brought Percy, he would be able to get some more answers about his mother and his past and all the memories he's lost. But once Percy gets there, Hades basically just says he's going to lock Percy up because he wants Nico. He actually says he wants Bianca to be the child of the prophecy, but obviously she died, which I thought was sad because he's just like, Nico's nothing. I wish Bianca were still here, which was just terrible. But he basically says that he just wants to wait out the war for now and he wants to basically make it take longer. So if they wait until Nico turns 16, that's still like four years later. And so he's like, I'll just lock Percy up and he'll just die or whatever. But and he wants to do that because that way, if Nico is the child in the prophecy and he preserves Olympus and they win then Hades is like then I can be the ruler of all the gods so he can be end up on top so terrible one that's a terrible plan because (laughs) Percy would still be a big three demigod and if by locking him up he's still gonna turn 16 so that made no sense but we should have seen it coming like the Hades family they're all liars so we should have expected Nico to be lying and we definitely should have been Hades expected Hades to lie to Nico but it's okay because Nico does redeem himself He uses some really cool Hades powers to escape the prison. Like, he just, like, melts stone. He's just like, I'm walking through. Like, that's pretty cool. And then he does help Percy bathe in the sticks. And Percy gets very, very, very strong. But right before Percy goes into the river, Achilles' ghost appears. And he warns him not to do it. And Percy can even say that he can see the, like, regret in his eyes. Like, how he's talking about it. He's like, don't do this. And, like, please don't do this. But Percy does go through with it. And he chooses the small of his back as his anchor point slash Achilles heel point. And while he's in the water, he thinks about Annabeth pulling him out. And that's essentially what keeps him tied to his lifeline and is what makes him able to get out of the river once he's bathed in it. Yep, just more confirmation that Annabeth is his person. I really loved that that was, like, the romance that that anchored him. Obviously, like, you shouldn't be tied down by love, but still, like, I liked that he... I liked that it made sense that, you know, he was... She was the person that he thought of, because that is... With his his character, that's what we've gotten. And then, like, he gets super strong, and he pins down Hades. Like, he's, like, fully able to, like, stab Hades with Riptide. He doesn't, but... Like, he's real good. Like, he can take on gods now, which is Mm -hmm. pretty cool. And we definitely need it just for, you know, the amount of forces he has to fight. Nico's going to go talk to Hades, try to get him to change his mind and be a better dude. And Percy's about to go back up to Olympus. But before we do that, I quickly want to mention that when Nico is breaking prison, Percy out of prison, Percy notes that Nico's powers drain him too much. Like, when he breaks the rock, whenever he does, like, the traveling or any of, like, Nico's powers, they seem to wipe him out more than Percy's do. Like, Percy's still hurt him. Like, he gets that, like, pain in his gut. But I think that, like, Nico's, maybe it's because Nico is younger or less experienced. But I was like, I wonder if this this might end up being important. But what do you want to think, say, Asia? I was just going to say that I don't think that Nico's powers drain him necessarily more than Percy. I just think that Percy hasn't had to use his powers as much. Like, as Nico's helping Percy escape, he's putting the guards to sleep. So he Mm -hmm. probably puts, like, over 100 guards to sleep. Like, so he's doing a lot, which is why he's, like, 
about to pass out by the time they get to the river sticks. But so I don't know if it's necessarily that it's more. I just think that so far what we've seen of Nico, Nico's been using way more of his powers than Percy has. Percy's only really ever like remember when he when he explodes the volcano and he ends up on Calypso's island, like mm-hmm. he takes him weeks to recover from that. Like, so I don't think it's that it's more. I just think that we haven't seen Percy being forced to use his powers so frequently and conti- yes, and continuously with no break. Whereas Nico, we've seen that a little bit more in the plot. Okay. Well, I hope you're right because when Percy flagged that, I was like, ooh, maybe we should flag this too, especially because we like are wondering if other people are going to take on lines of the prophecy. Yeah. But I think that's with everyone. I think if you if you overuse your powers, they could drain you completely. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that maybe maybe it's less of a they do per capita more to Nico, but maybe more that he just uses them too frequently and too willy-nilly and therefore they like he puts himself at risk more. Yes. But then we head up to Olympus where Hestia is obviously there like she said she would be. And she immediately sees the curse of Achilles on Percy. And this moment, she shows Percy through her eyeballs, I guess, some visions of Luke's past, which include him giving Annabeth her celestial bronze knife. So we find out that bronze knife, that celestial bronze knife that she always carries around is actually a gift from Luke. And that, that moment lasts like a second and he like collapses. <laughs> And he's like, how long was I out? And Annabeth's like, you looked at Hestia for a second and then collapsed. But during that, he sees like a whole movie of events, which I just thought was funny. But anyway, right after that, Hermes ends up showing up and he says. He blames Annabeth for Luke's behavior. Oh, yeah. He says he blames Annabeth for why Luke has not been saved. He says like, you're the only one who could have saved him and everything. And this is part of the vision. Isn't this Hestia shows the moment with Luke and Annabeth and Talia, they go to his house mm-hmm. and Luke is, cause they're looking for food or something. And he shows up and a voice says like, you should not have come home. And it doesn't say who it is, but we can just assume it's Hermes. Well, oh no, Percy confirms because he says he just heard the voice in the vision and then Hermes shows up and speaks and he's like, it was the same voice. So it's Hermes who says you should not have come home. So I know I was wrote down, maybe this is why Luke hates Hermes so much because I think Hermes maybe blames Luke for what happened to his mom and like Luke leaving her is what maybe drove her over the edge to like insanity and obviously Hermes was in love with her if he had a child with her. And I think he even makes a comment when he's talking about her, like how he loves her and stuff. But yeah, he blames Annabeth. And Percy's just kind of wondering like, oh, I wonder like what that moment was, which we do find out later what that moment is because Luke apparently visited Annabeth in San Francisco before he became one with Kronos And she basically chose Percy because she didn't trust Luke. And Luke comes and is like, we should, I just, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. We should just run away together. Like, forget the Titans, the gods, like, let's just run away. And obviously, Annabeth has the right to be skeptical of this 
Luke's betrayed everyone she knows, betrayed her. Like, I wouldn't just run away with him either. But I think it's also how Luke, he doesn't want to go back to Camp Half-Blood because obviously he probably knows, like, he's burned those bridges. Like, he'll never be welcome back there. He'll never be able to be trusted again. But he wants to run away. And I think that that's a lot for Hermes to be like, it was her job to run away with Luke to save him. Like, if anything, Annabeth maybe could have encouraged him to run away on his own, but she has no obligation to be with him and to go with him. So I just think that it was, and Hermes even like takes a step back and I don't know if he apologized, but he takes a step back, but he's throwing out of a lot of blame when like, it's ultimately probably his fault because Luke felt unloved. If Hermes said to him in that vision from Hestia that you shouldn't have come home, like what a terrible thing. The only time he's met his father too. Like, yeah, Percy says that it's the only time he's ever met his father is to him to say, you shouldn't have come home. Yeah. I was really frustrated with Hermes, especially because Hermes has been like kind of a fun God. Like he's been kind of a cool uncle to, I guess he's more like a cousin to Percy because I think he's a child of Zeus, but like, He's like a second cousin or something like that. But, like, he's been really Mm -hmm. nice to Percy. And even when Percy couldn't save Luke, Hermes is like, well, you did your best, like, in the second book. So I felt like it was he was throwing out a lot of blame. And I would agree with you that it's really his fault. Like, he's never been involved in Percy in Luke's life. And it's his behavior that kind of let, like, that I'm sure is it's his fault that May Castellan ended up so messed up. Like, he's the one who brought her into the God circle. Like, if he hadn't done that. She'd be okay. And it's really his neglect of Half-Bloods and of Luke that brought Half-Bloods into the war to begin with. Like, if he'd been a better father, he his kid wouldn't feel like he has to rebel against him. So, you know, and we see that because Percy has a not even that involved father. It's not like Poseidon is, you know, around that much. But he does enough to let Percy know that he's appreciated. And... Yeah. Athena, like, clearly has done enough. Like, it's not like you have to be best friends with them. But, like, we have other demigods who have done enough to keep their kids happy. Or, like, at least respected. So I'm like, Hermes throwing a lot of blame at Luke and then at Annabeth. And then, like, it's a little unfair because, honestly, he should just take responsibility for some of his actions. Yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to that he chose May over Luke, his son. Mm -hmm. He loved her and he blames Luke for causing her downward spiral. But anyway, because of all of that, now they are in a full-out war, which means they have to prepare. And Hermes brings the message, basically, that Athena foresaw the Typhon trap, and she tells Annabeth that she should use Plan 23, which we later learn is one of... Daedalus's plans about activating all of the bronze statues in Manhattan and that they're actually automatons automatons and he tells and Athena tells Percy to remember the rivers which we don't know what that means at this moment but we find out in a little bit so they go and start prepping for battle and and when they when they activate Plan Twenty Three and the sold, the statues start moving again, this this podcast should just be named Harry Potter Illusions because in Book Seven, oh my god, when they make all the gargoyles and statues of Harry Potter move of Hogwarts move, pretty boss moment. And the scene in the movie is really good where Dame Maggie Smith she like 
points at the statues and she's like, Pier Totem Locomotor. And all the statues start to move. And she has this really cute, cute moment with Molly Weasley where she's like, I've always wanted to use that spell. I love that gif as well. Anyway, sorry. Back to Percy Jackson. <laughs> I need to read Harry Potter. I guess it's tis the season. Anyway, there's a really, really cute moment when they're looking out over their, all the haplids are still on Olympus before they start prepping for battle. And Percy looks down and he sees everyone's asleep and he sees like the chaos that's starting to ensue by everyone falling asleep. And he says, what did they do to my city? And I was like, oh, I'm just getting goosebumps rereading it right now off my notes. Um, oh, oh, goosebumps. But because like we live in New York and like I feel that way about New York, um, you know, obviously I wasn't born here, but he like the way he like that line was very poignant that like he's seeing like his home completely like stolen from him destroyed yeah yeah. and i feel that way about new york and i was just (laughs) like ooh, ooh, i would feel oh yeah i can't imagine okay well i wanted to take note of because clarice and the aries cabin are still not with them they go into manhattan and percy's like handing out duties to the different cabins and I just, I just cannot believe that Clarice is being this petty over a flying chariot. Like the fate of the world is at stake and they're refusing to help. Yeah. Well, do you have any comments on that? And since, you know, Clarice is one of your favorite characters, she's kind of being a terrible character right now. She's being pretty terrible. I can't, I can't defend that. It's pretty petty. It's pretty bad. I think they're like, I'm holding out hope that secretly she's doing something like covert. Like she's like a background mission that's actually gonna like help save the day. I hope so. I doubt it. But I hope so because I'm like, honestly, this would be a pretty bad, like bad behavior on her part. Yeah. And, but instead of the Aries cabin, Talia shows up with Artemis's hunters. So they pitch in to help. Yeah. And I love Talia. So I'm glad we got her back. Mm-hmm. And, that was that's just nice. And they're talking about defending. They defend the bridges and the tunnels. And I just want to point out that they completely forget to defend Upper Manhattan. And I know they're, like, short. They don't have a lot of people. But, like, the George Washington Bridge completely neglected any access from Queens, like the Queensboro Bridge. Or, you know, the Bronx or Randall's Island. Just, like, nope. They, they were really only worried about Midtown and Downtown. But, I mean, I guess that's fine because apparently that's where Kronos came from anyway. And we, you know, Percy, like, cleans the two rivers with his sand dollar. And I was like, that's pretty funny for New Yorkers because, you know, the rivers are infamously filthy. Yeah, that'd be pretty great to actually have them clean, clean that easily. Oh, my goodness. We could actually go canoeing there. I'm, like, too scared right now because I'm worried I'd fall over and get burned in the acid of the Hudson River. (laughs) Anyway, it's basically time for battle. And Percy ends up on the Williamsburg Bridge to help out the Apollo cabin where the Minotaur, which is the monster he defeated in the first book. It was the first monster he ever killed. The Minotaur is reformed and he defeats the Minotaur within like five minutes. And then he kills like 150 soldiers, pretty much all on his own, which, you know, wow, that Achilles curse is, is really helping him out clearly. But then Chrono shows up with demigod soldiers and Ethan, the traitor, shows up and he actually ends up wounding Annabeth. Yeah, we really shouldn't have spared Ethan. Like, he's the one who helps 
First, he should have killed, killed him, you know, with Kronos. And then he's the one who also, like, he's on the ship when Beckendorf gets killed. And then he's the one who wounds Annabeth. Like, this kid, ooh, he deserves a beating. Um, and, like, honestly, I get it. Percy can't kill the demigods. But they have been so bad. Like, I know they're kind of brainwashed. But, like, that's so bad. Like, they're doing terrible, terrible things. And they're killing their cousins. But... I'm like, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to say they deserve death because that seems harsh. Like I said last episode, like the the monsters, I don't mind them getting stabbed because they can always reform. But I think that, but I think that the, like they do deserve like more retribution than Percy being like, oh, I must fight harder to protect them, even though they're trying to kill me. Anyway, but they do end up splitting open the bridge. Which holds Kronos off for some reason. I guess he can't go in the water. Can't form a bridge. He can warp time, but he can't cross the water. Okay. And then... Well, Percy even says that he might be able to, but they obviously decide to retreat for whatever reason. Something mischievous. I'm sure of it. And then Percy runs to the Plaza Hotel, which is being used as the headquarters. And the Plaza is... The Plaza's... Like, he ta- has this really cute, like, moment talking about, like, whether he would have chosen a plaza or not. But, like, when I think about the plaza, it actually kind of looks like a castle from the outside. Like, in the middle of Manhattan. Like, it's got, like, a pretty big courtyard and a gate. Not that that would really defend you against a titan. But, like, unlike a lot of city stuff in New York, like, where the buildings are right on the street, like, the entrance to the plaza is recessed mm-hmm. a little bit. Again, wouldn't really help you with titans, but it does look a little more like a fortress. But... Anyway, Annabeth is being treated there, and she's definitely going to be okay, but she is hurt, so she's out of commission, which is a little sad. And he and Percy and Annabeth have, like, heart-to-heart. Yeah, and Percy ends up telling Annabeth where his Achilles spot is, which I wrote down, I just think that's a terrible idea. Not that we can't trust Annabeth, but what happens if she gets captured and they're like, we're going to kill you if you don't tell us? Like, I don't know, you just, you're specifically not supposed to tell anybody, so I even though Annabeth is his person and whatever, I personally, like, I wouldn't have told her. Oh, I completely agree. It was a very bad idea. He even has a line where he's like, if I can't trust Annabeth, I can't trust anyone. I'm like, but it's not a question of trusting Annabeth. It's a question yeah. of trusting the entire world who could do something to Annabeth. Granted, to get it out of her. if Annabeth was a spy, not that I'm saying she is, but if she was, that would make his love life with Rachel a lot easier. <laughs> True. But obviously, since I'm an Athena kid, I'm obviously pro-Annabeth. But yes, bad idea, bad idea. Don't tell anyone your Achilles spot. If you bathe in the river Styx, don't even tell your best friend. Asia doesn't know where mine is. (laughs) Anyway, so after that, Percy goes to sleep and, of course, has some more dreams. And he sees Nico down in the underworld summoning the dead. And he's trying to summon his mother's spirit, which Bianca actually shows up for a second and is like, you don't need to see this. Remember, holding grudges is... Like our fatal flaw for Hades' children, which he even says, like, it's not about holding grudges. I guess maybe since she knows what's happened, like, he might hold a grudge. But he just wants answers, which I feel like is totally fair. Like, he should be able to know where he came from, what happened to his mother. Like, so instead of her showing up, he gets this vision, basically. And it shows Hades and Maria D'Angelo, his mother. They're at, like, a hotel. And him and his sister are playing. And... 
Maria is having a conversation with Hades and Hades is like, we have to go in hiding. We have to hide the children. Like they've just given this great prophecy saying that a child of the big three is going to destroy Olympus and we're not allowed to have kids anymore. And she's like, well, we already have the kids, so it's fine. And Hades is like, you don't understand. Like Zeus is going to try to kill them. Like we need to hide them. And basically she's just being really stubborn and naive. And obviously Hades knows what he's talking about. It's his family and he knows how vengeful and terrible they can be. And she's like, it's fine. And she like goes off to the bathroom and basically (laughs) Zeus sends like a lightning bolt and explodes the entire hotel. And he has just enough time to like cover the children like with his powers. But since his wife isn't with him, he couldn't help her. So Maria dies. And so that's obviously very sad. And so Hades has. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say. Right after that happens, like, one of the Furies shows up and he's like, okay, wipe the children's memories, go hide them in the Lotus Casino so they won't age and they'll be hidden for a while. And then he's like, do the burial rites or whatever for the mom. And then the Oracle shows up, which this is back when the Oracle was alive. She's, like, a young girl. And she basically says how she warned Hades and he's, like, mad at her because he's like, why don't you do anything? And she's like, I'm just the Oracle. I'm the messenger. I can't do anything. Like, I warned you, I told you to hide them, and you didn't do that. But because Hades is super mad, he's the one who puts the curse on her that she'll never be able to have another mortal host, which is why the Oracle Spirit is trapped in the mummy because she's trapped in that body. So I thought that was sad and kind of, again, taking out your anger on somebody that it wasn't her fault. But, you know, Hades is evil, and and he was he rightfully angry. Yeah. Like, it was it was really tragic. Like, because we had wondered why the oracles in a mummy to begin with, but it's really like we should just flag that like Zeus kills his brother's lover. Like, Hades is his brother, and I know they don't always get along. And yes, Hades was cheating on Persephone, but like Zeus isn't one to talk on cheating. And but like Zeus kills her just and the kids just because he's like can't risk it gotta kill someone and like you wonder again it kind of goes back to you know Hermes wondering why Luke turns out evil I'm like you wonder why people turn evil you do bad things and people are gonna resent you like maybe Hades shouldn't you know be evil and torturous because of this but you you know mess him over I'm trying to use a polite word but like you you know, you put him in a bad situation multiple times. Of mess course, he's going to mess him over. That's not the word. <laughs> That's a new phrase. You mess, mess him, him over, over enough times and he was going to be evil. Like, of course he is. Like, the gods do bad things all the time as well, even to each other. And they're paying the price. Also, just, again, Zeus, you cannot avoid a prophecy. Like, you cannot avoid a prophecy by killing off the kids. Like, there were always going to be kids that were eligible for this prophecy. Yeah. So, like, the idea of, like, oh, well, I'll just kill them so it won't be these ones. I'm like, someone's going to have a kid. And then he fully did. (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, moving on to part two of the dream. Percy sees Rachel again. And she has a message for Percy. And they're on their vacation in, like, the Caribbean or something. And she... Percy sees her going to her dad and basically convincing her to go back to New York because she's like, I have a message for Percy. I have to tell him. And she basically agrees that she'll go to this ladies boarding school. If, if a finishing school, 
what did I call it? Oh, a boarding school. Finish. No, it's a, fishing a, boarding, school. a finishing school is a type of boarding school. It's just like extra. I was awful. just like, I just completely forgot what I said. So I was like, did I say anything close to that? No, you said it completely correctly. Anyway. It's just a finishing school is like more brutal, I think. Cause I think it's like, you have to do like social entrance yeah. things like cotillion yeah. and like being presented to society. Anyway, she tells her dad that she'll go to this school that he's been wanting her to go to if he can get her back to New York immediately, which is obviously a terrible idea because New York is asleep and there's a war going on. But the chapter ends with a Titan showing up at the hotel. Percy's like just woken up and I think maybe Talia or somebody comes in and they're like, there's a Titan here and he's coming to bring a message from Kronos. And that's how the chapter ends. That's our finish of our reading for the episode. Yeah, like what a cliffhanger. Like we got a real major suspenseful cliffhanger. And honestly, I can't wait to finish recording this episode so that we can, I can go to read the next chapter. You know, we try to not read ahead so that we don't do any inadvertent spoiling or even have like anything in the back of our mind. But I'm like, I when I finished this reading, I almost read ahead and I was like, no, Charles, record first, record first. Anyway, before we move on, because I that, think that wraps it up, but I have a prediction on who the spy of Camp Half-Blood is now. I think I've got it. Okay. And I want to hear yours, Asia, but my prediction is that it's Selena Beauregard, daughter of Aphrodite. Because? Because I don't think it's Percy or Annabeth. Mm-hmm. One, Percy, we'd have to have like some major like split personality schizophrenia <laughs> for him to be the spy because we get everything from his thoughts. Yeah. I don't think it's Chiron because we've kind of like Chiron has had chances to go work for Kronos and we've kind of got that story played out because he's Kronos's child that I feel like it's really obvious and dull if it's Chiron. I don't think it's Annabeth because Annabeth is our second protagonist and... I think that she's just, like, in love with Percy, so I don't think she's... Also, because she could have gone over to Luke. Like, I just feel like it doesn't really... I mean, maybe maybe she is a spy, and that would be really, really awful. I don't think it's Clarice, because that also seems obvious. Like, we've seen Clarice be petty and petulant, and it doesn't make sense for her to... Like, that would be too obvious for, like, someone who's been, like, the consistent, like, anti-hero nemesis. But Selena, she's gained more like we got her name like in the second or the third book so she's been around for a while but we haven't like and she's a head camper so she's always in the war councils Mm -hmm. she's also beckendorf's girlfriend so she would have known all the details of that plan including like the explosions and everything that's so terrible though she's a spy and she got her boyfriend killed but maybe she was a boy uh, she was his girlfriend so that she could get close to him and because he's also a head camper, like he's also a counselor. And the fact that she volunteers to go back to Camp Half-Blood to convince Clarice and the fact that she becomes friends with Clarice right before, like after Chris and yada, yada, yada and Beckendorf, like they become really good friends. But I'm like, that's unlike Clarice. But I'm like, Selena could have like charmed her way in because she's Aphrodite's daughter. And I feel like, I feel, and then the fact that she's like, I'll go back to Half-Blood and get... Clarice and Aries, like, I was like, I don't believe that. Like, she's asking to get out of the, out of the battlefield. Out of the battlefield. And she's been in every council because she's a head camper. I think that's a good prediction. I, I'm going to be 100% honest. I didn't even think about it. But that to me sounds like a good prediction. So I'm just going to agree with you because it, I would also, I would assume it's, it has to be a named character. Like, it would be kind of, it would be bad writing if it was me someone we didn't know. To, 
to just throw in a random person and be like, they're the spy and we've like never heard of this person. But I, I just don't um, want to believe that it's one of our like big characters. I don't want to believe that it's Percy, Annabeth, Grover, Clarice, or Chiron. Like, No, I don't think it's any of those. I do think it's a person that's been named, but they're not huge. And like Selena kind of fits that. We started to get to know her, especially in this book. And but she's not a major character, so it wouldn't be that much of a betrayal if she was the spy. But I mean, and what you just said, how you explained, she's been on all the council meetings, so like she knows what's going on, which would make sense. It would need to be somebody who knows exactly what's happening to be able to communicate. Yeah. Also, like it can't be the Hermes Kronos, twins because we've gotten enough. Like it literally said, like are the Hermes twins the spies because they're also Luke's brothers? And I'm like, that just seems it's too obvious. Yeah. Also, just. I think Chrono says how they communicate is through like some kind of necklace piece of jewelry or something. So like it would make sense that it was a girl or Aphrodite, like because you would never notice that. That wouldn't be weird for her to have like a special necklace on. Or she so, has like a little charm I, bracelet, like a little Chronos bracelet. I yeah, I don't remember who this spy is, but like what you just said, like that that makes sense to me. So I would definitely agree well, with you. Well, we're gonna finish recording soon so that I can figure out who the spy is, and I can't wait. And that means that next week we'll finally be on our uh, our final episode of Percy Jackson. Next week we'll read the final chunk of The Last Olympian, chapters 13 through 23. So read to the end of the series for next week. Yes, I cannot wait. And if you have any predictions, theories, or questions, remember that you can stay in touch with us about anything on the Nerd Party website. You can head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty. And you can find me on at asiabonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram. And I'm at C.E. Sheeland on both Twitter and Instagram. Remember that we're a new podcast, so if you enjoyed this, rate and review the show, share it with your friends and family, subscribe, and of course, check out all the other wonderful podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Make sure that you don't miss us next week, because next week we're going to be finishing out Percy Jackson, and remember that after that, we'll be moving on to The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel by Michael Scott. So go ahead and get your hand on a copy of The Alchemist, which is the first book, so you can keep reading with us if you want to read along. Yep, so just keep on listening, subscribe and share, and have a good one. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.